Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your host for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us on Twitter using our new dedicated podcast account at EOSceneFrom or the hashtag SceneFromAbove and can access the podcast in a variety of ways including via our websites jogger.co.uk and acgeospatial.co.uk, Blueberry and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or through iTunes if you like what you hear. It helps new listeners find this podcast. Um, 174 things launched before I talk about the news. I forgot how many things we had launched before. It was fewer than that. <laughs> I just have seen that, sorry, satellites have confirmed that Novasar 1 is going to go up in September. Okay, cool. Uh, Novasar, it's uh, S-band radar satellite. Ooh, you don't get many of those. No, I think it's completely unique, actually. Yeah. It's a very interesting looking satellite. It's, it's like a ramp. <laughs> okay. It reminds me a bit of Robot Wars. <laughs> Again, I'm massively digressing, but I saw also today that someone has made out of Lego a dove. Oh, that's cool. I do like the fact that they're so easy to launch these little satellites. I saw an article today that it wasn't about Earth observation, it was about radio tracking of wildlife. It's a new system that's being trialed where there's an antenna on the International Space Station. And one of the astronauts that's up there at the moment, by hand, launched four little micro satellites. But really, that is amazing that you can launch a satellite by hand. You know, a guy can just take four out in a bag and launch them at various times when he's told to. <laughs> and that's your system up and running. The agility that we now have to get research satellites up there, it is very cool. Should we do some news? We should do some news. Bulletin for the Atomic Scientists got this post. It says the public and Washington don't share the same space priorities. They start their article by saying what percentage of Americans think that NASA should be focusing its energy on. Is it going to the moon? And the answer is 3%. And that's a little bit contrary to how the media perhaps are portraying the new space age but they're saying in this article that according to the people surveyed the top priority 43 percent the top priority was to monitor the earth's climate which is quite nice really in the in the sense that people are seeing this having a value i was pleasantly surprised by this article yeah i think it's a very positive story and i think that the various heat waves that we've experienced around the world in 2018 have really helped in terms of getting the message of how satellites and gridded spatial data can help in monitoring what's going on in terms of the climate and the impacts that that has. Just going through my Twitter feed sort of in the last six to eight weeks has been an amazing number of different measurements and modeling results and all sorts of things. They all have a link to the type of information that's getting recorded from satellite sensors. It's really engaging, I think. On top of that, there's been yet another article about the vast opportunities that space is now providing. So this is an article I saw on Money Week. There are a huge number of investment opportunities now and saying that it's just an incredible time to be involved in it. So two really sort of positive articles. I definitely think that it is an amazing time to be in the industry and to be part of what's happening. 
all of these data sources are coming online and there's there seems to be a lot of positivity in terms of the thought process about how the data can be used and how it can get out to more and more varied user groups. I saw something on Twitter and then I followed it up and th this is really, really cool. Well, I think it's very cool. A bunch of researchers have gone out and they've used European SAR satellites um, from 1992 through to 2011. So this is European Space Agency satellites. And they have looked at the seasonal ground deformation in Southern California that is due to the amount of water, groundwater, that is pumped out of, of that. So that'll be for drinking water for the population and for irrigation for agriculture. Those will be the two main uh, uses. They've created a really mesmerizing animation where it just looks like Southern California is basically just sort of breathing, looks like a diaphragm going up and down. And the, the thing that's quite funny is that, I mean, they've, they've obviously stretched the the range of this to make it visible and to make it look very engaging again. And cool. Yeah, yeah. But the actual displacement is tiny. I mean, we're talking like 20 or 30 millimeters. But um, there are a number of things that I think are really cool about this. One, that it's been done. Two, that it was done with European Space Agency satellite data. Three, that we can pick this up from space over time. I mean, this is just bonkers. These, these tiny displacements that you can see, and then you can relate it back to something like the water use and the pumping that's happening there. And you can just see how... I don't know, people who, who are in the water industry, the water resource industry, they could use this and, and make all sorts of inferences from the type of data that they're getting, and, and maybe they already are. Yeah, I, I just got, I got very excited about this, as you might be able to tell from the way I'm talking about it. Yeah, awesome. Right, I want to ask you about this. What is this? 3% of the wedding presents back catalogue includes a space theme. What? At the weekend, I went to see the wedding present, and the wedding present if you don't know, are possibly the best band in the world. Oh, it's a band? Yes. I thought you were talking about some sort of wedding present list. No, no, no. So the wedding present have been around since the mid-80s, and so they've got quite an extensive back catalogue. My partner, whilst she was at the gig on Saturday night, she noticed that there seemed to be a fair number of songs that were mentioning space or had a bit of a spacey theme. Yeah, afterwards, it got me thinking, and I went away, looked at the uh, back catalogue, and there are 238 songs that The Wedding Present have released, or at least that I could find, of which seven have an obvious space theme. So that makes 3% of The Wedding Present back catalogue has a space theme. That's probably enough about the wedding present for the time being. Sorry about that. But uh, if you have any space-related songs that you particularly like, then tweet about them on hashtag SceneFromAbove or contact us via the new Twitter account at EOSceneFrom. I've seen a lot of articles from geospatialworld.net, but this, this, this again is sort of along the lines of 7,000 7, small sats going to be launched over the next decade or so. There's lots of people in the market. So how they differentiate themselves is going to be very interesting. These 7,000 new things. I mean, they can't, they can't all just be replacement doves, surely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By 2022, an average of 580 small sats will be launched every year. Because we've been following the number this year, that seems to be hard to believe. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it seems a little bit on the high side. Planet dominate the small sat market. Yeah, definitely. They don't launch 580 a year. 
So yeah. where are they coming from? So the last thing that I wanted to mention was something that's happening as we record, I think, uh, from what I've seen on Twitter. There's currently a satellite data interoperability workshop happening over in the US. And this is talking about the spatiotemporal asset catalog and analysis ready data. So two things. And I've just been looking through some notes about who's speaking and who's sponsoring and things like that. And it is basically a gathering of the great and the good at the moment, all of the leaders really in the uh, sector. Um, so we're talking about companies like Azavia, Maxar, Planet, Vito, Google are in there, Element 84, Development Seed, Earthcast, Spark Geo, Boundless, Descartes Labs, way more than that as well. But um, ESA, NASA, USGS, NOAA, they're all represented, as are various universities, including UCL from London. We've got Boston University there as well, and uh, a few others. And then non-governmental organizations like Radiant Earth, CEOS, our very own satellite applications catapult is also represented, which is cool. Yeah. And many more than I've just read out. I've been following one or two of the tweets that have come out on it, and it looks like it's been an absolutely amazing meeting. I downloaded the program of talks as well, and that looks great. Um, but I don't know, have, have you come across this? I mean, this this does seem to be quite a big thing at the moment. Yes, I have. And um, I have been following it like you have. And again, I saw Chris Holmes saying earlier that they've recorded all the talks oh great one of the things that struck me more than anything was analysis ready SAR data yes I saw that as well earlier yeah I think it's something that sort of clicks a switch in my brain because it makes perfect sense the thing that excites me about this is that looking at the names of some of the uh, organizations from which the attendees have come you, you feel that things actually might get done and now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, if we can't all come together and make something useful out of this, then I don't know what we have to do in order to get the EO sector really out there. Because I, I think this is this is really, really cool. Uh, I agree. And I, th I think we will look back in a sh only a short period of time and say this is this article that, that you've uh, talked about is a key foundation stone for this stuff. Yeah, and if, you, if you're listening to this and you've got any thoughts on any of these things, then please make those thoughts available to us through our new Twitter account, at EOSceneFrom, or use the hashtag SceneFromAbove. Look at that, that's proper marketing. Shall we move on to our topic? Yes, let's, <laughs> let's talk about our topic, which this time is how important is GDAL? Oh, I was going to ask you, how do you pronounce G-D-A-L? But I've given my opinion straight away. How do you pronounce it? I'm G-D-A-L as well. G-D-A-L, you're not G-D-A-L. No. So I think we should start off and say what G-D-A-L is. Um, so I've got a, a little bit from Wikipedia that I've culled. I just want to read this out, just so everyone's on the same page as to what we're talking about. So it goes, the Geospatial Data Abstraction Library, G-D-A-L, is a computer software library for reading and writing raster and vector geospatial data formats and is released under the permissive XMIT style free software license by the Open Source Geospatial Foundation, otherwise known as OSGEO. As a library, it presents a single abstract data model to the calling application for all supported formats. 
It may also be built for the variety of useful command line interface utilities for data translation and processing. And GDAL is considered a major free software project for its extensive capabilities of data exchange. As of version 2.2.3, which I think is the latest, GDAL provides at least partial support for 154 raster formats. So after all of that, basically what it is, is a library for transforming formats, but my God, it does so much more. <laughs> you should have just said that, I think. <laughs> uh, GDAL, I mean, what can you say? It's just completely fundamental in my world. When I first started thinking about GDAL, it was all at the command line. Uh, I grew up with Windows and I know a little bit about Ubuntu and Linux and nothing really about Macs. Um, and I, I came from an Esri background and I didn't really think too much about GDAL. And in fact, I started off as I perceive most other people starting off with the command line going, whoa, it's not really for me, I think. And then as you get into it, the opposite happens, which is, whoa, this is amazing. And look at all the things I can do in, in one command line. That's, that's really interesting that you came at it first from a command line perspective, because I was sort of the opposite way around. So I used to be an Arc user way back when. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking about how the software was doing what it was doing. And then for some reason, I must have installed a really early version of QGIS. And like you could do the raster stuff through the GUI, but there was this weird thing that created all these commands at the bottom. And it was that, it was seeing those commands that made me go and find out what this GDAL thing was and what it does. And I now, because I'm a Linux user primarily, I now use the command line more than I do any other form. So that's interesting that you're, you started with the command line. Like anything, you, you, you kind of get to the point where it only goes so far, but you get to the point where you can only do so much in a desktop GIS. So you move maybe to the command line. And then yeah. you can do so much to the command line, so you move to programming. And then you can only do so much maybe programming, so you move to cloud-based computing or parallel processing or whatever. And when I say you, I mean me. And that, that's the sort of path that I, that I took. The amazing thing about GDAL is that it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it, it underpins nearly all geospatial software that deals with rasters or imagery. I mean, whether that's open source software or proprietary. So uh, Esri has it in, in Arc. It's in Erdas Imagine. It's under, it underpins Envy. It's behind Google Earth, QGIS, Orpheo, all of these. You know, they pull on the GDAL libraries. And the thing I find really cool about GDAL is that it's continually being developed. It's not as if the, the community have developed it and then gone, like, oh, there, there it is, it's done. I yep. mean, the fact that it has support for 150, I mean, who knew there were 154 raster formats? Well, I mean, why are there 154? <laughs> <laughs> well, that in itself is another podcast. Yeah, exactly. Before we get too deep into it, I wanted to say two GDAL tips. And I don't know how well these things work on a podcast, but if we assume that I've got uh, a raster, any raster, and it's called input.tiff, if you've got GDAL installed and if, if you're on Windows, OSGO4W is the easiest way to get this working at the command line. If you type GDAL info, all one word, and then your input.tiff, your input file, and then you do the greater than sign and then put a name of a text file, it will return all the GDAL info 
to that text file. GDAL info kicks out a lot of information about uh, yeah, it. Yeah, so, I mean, we're not talking a couple of lines here. <laughs> this, yeah, it, it is yeah, I mean, an impressive it, it, amount of information. The ultimate inspector for your raster data. Please don't be afraid of it. That's all I'm trying to say to people using the command line because it's the it's the gateway to using it further in other things. And the other thing that I find very useful, GDL Translate. Um, you know that is a, that is amazing in itself. It does. You know, <laughs> what was it again? 154 formats. You can move from one format to the other with GDL Translate. But quite often, I want to extract just one band from an RGB, and I can use the flag uh, minus B. So GDL underscore Translate space minus B, and to get band one, I just put one and then space input TIFF, and then space my output TIFF, and I'll get one band raster image out. Not impossible in Q or in ARC, but it involves a lot of right-clicking, a lot of typing and folder clicking, and by the time you've done all that, I could have done it 15 times at the command line. Yeah, exactly. And even if you're at the stage where you're not very used to the command line, you can basically it say you had 20 images and you had to extract the first band from each of those 20. You could just copy and paste that 20 times and it would still be quicker than doing it through the graphical method. But the really cool thing about this is that you can then start building some of the tools around the command line. And this is before you even get into sort of like dedicated coding like Python, yeah. where you can just have a for loop and it will extract all of those first bands from the 20 images and it's amazingly quick having a couple of small wins like this is really useful for people who are just starting out and that's the kind of stuff that lends itself to being in batch isn't it you know extracting yes. one band or converting a format or you know gdl translate is perfect for batch yes yeah as we're talking tips, I think the thing that was a sort of light bulb moment for me with GDAL was when I came across uh, GDAL Calc. Yep. So this is um, one of the utilities in GDAL. So GDAL as a library has a whole series of different utilities, and you can go to their website, which we'll put in the show notes, and, and look through what each one does. But I had a, a project where I had something like, I think it was like 250 pretty large mosaics of, of imagery and I needed to calculate about three or four different radiometric indices. I found GDAL calc and I was like wow okay so from the command line I can just write a bash script that was something like 10 lines long and then it just plonked them out and it was brilliant because I took I, I don't know how long this was a while ago so I'm thinking I probably took a morning or maybe a day to learn how to use to do that properly and to set up things how I wanted it and just you know run a test or two to make sure it was doing it. Yeah. And then I pressed go and boom, it was done by the time I came into the office the next morning. Well, you might take longer getting it all sorted out, but once you've got your bit of code or whatever it is, you can run it in next to no time. And and you don't have to do anything. You you can run it and go off and do your next project or, or whatever. And it's a real time saver, I find. You've highlighted the the cheat sheet on um, GitHub. Yes, yeah, I find that incredibly useful. Even now, I still I still refer to the cheat sheet. Yeah, uh, everybody should star this on GitHub if you've got a GitHub account. This is an amazing resource, and it's not obviously been knocked together in ten minutes. 
Care's gone into it. The thing I like about it, actually, is that once you start scrolling through this, there's not a massive amount of explanation. So if you scroll through the, the GDAL webpage itself, there's almost so much information that it, you start to get a bit lost as to which flag or which um, argument you need for each different thing. Yes. But because this, this cheat sheet is just a series of little examples, it's so intuitive. I look at them and I just go, oh, well, of course, that, and then those flags, input, output, or whatever it is. And you just think, yeah, I, I don't need any more sort of explanation. GDAL is available in all sorts of different places. And I think that's what's really nice about it is it's been ported to so many different environments. So you could command line in Linux, it works brilliantly. You've been talking about the command line on Windows. Yeah. We have it in Python, both as a direct library, but also through other ones like but it's in R as well. So there's a package called RGDAL. And obviously you've got it in sort of GUI software, like QGIS, ArcGIS, uh, Envy. And then there's sort of what I've called esoteric ports. So there's a wrapper for GDAL uh, in the Go language and also in Rust. One of the tools that I've come across that I really can't recommend highly enough is something called PK Tools. And it's, it's basically an extension. So it takes the base of GDAL and then just tweaks little things, just a tiny little bit. And it's so, so useful. It's over a year old, I think. So is it, ma is it maintained? Uh, I don't know, but it, let's hope it is. Because that's the other thing about GDAL, isn't it? That it's really well maintained. Yeah. It's constantly being updated and improved. I mean, it, it's already got support for the... Um, the cognitive cloud optimized user. Yeah. Yeah. And yet the other thing actually, I've got it in our notes here, is the virtual raster formats. And it's not yes. something that you necessarily come across much until you start using GDAL, but it's really good and and it creates a very small file and you can do all the things you need to do with it. You can mosaic, you can translate, you can uh, run any sort of standard um, stretching operation or anything like that. So the virtual raster formats are, you know, another great thing uh, being part of GDAL. I, I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you don't, but perhaps you're a bit more in touch with it. But is GDAL taught much at university? Um, not that I've come across, although I haven't been involved in that side of things for a while. But it seems... From, from what I've heard from people like early career professionals that I've been speaking to, it does sound like there's still quite a big emphasis on using specific types of software. I might be wrong because um, I know that the uptake of Python is, is beginning to increase. And I don't know, I would really like there to be an OSGO course or something, and like an OSGO degree. That'd be super cool. Mm, Earth Data Science degree. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to drive that, aren't we? It's going to be you and me teaching Earth Data Science. That'll be our next project. Until everybody accepts that that is a career. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say one more thing about GDAL. I think that GDAL is the thing that helps the GIS world and the remote sensing world come together. I think that's probably, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's probably one of the things that, that helps that. Certainly, I mean, we haven't mentioned OGR, but uh, I mean, OGR is the vector side of the library. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of including that in my generalization. Yeah, 
And I think that I think that's why you've got a point is because through this library that handles both vector and raster, I can quite happily use OGR and, uh, to to do the stuff I need to do. So yeah, I think you're probably probably right there. I think that GDAL and OGR combined is the thing that brings those two worlds together better than else at this present time. I think that's a good point to stop on our GDAL discussion. So I've got one more thing. I just wanted to give a shout out for the National Earth Observation Conference that's uh, being held in Birmingham in the UK between the 4th and 7th of September. It looks like there's some really great presentations and I'm really looking forward to going to that. So if you're going to be at the conference as well, come over and say hello. And who knows, maybe we could record some Vox Pops and get you on one of the subsequent podcasts. So I'm going to be there on Friday, the 7th of September, because uh, I'm presenting. And I'm presenting a talk called Remote Sensing Sucks. I'll let you know how it goes once I get back from that. Cool. <laughs> well, hopefully it's going to have a, a few surprises in there. Um, yeah, so if you're around, come along. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then drop us a line through Twitter using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. And please do follow us on at EOSceneFrom. If you know of anyone else who's in the RS or EO sector, then please tell them about our new Twitter account as well. We need lots of followers. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Asta. And goodbye. Yeah, I suppose it's a telescope in a box, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>